Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to those watching online as well. We're grateful to be in the Lord's house, and this is that Sunday when I preach early in this service so that I can preach late in the service downstairs. So here I am. Uh, the message for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, if you want to find that. Now, we have been going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for some while now, and we find ourselves in chapter 6. Uh, Jesus has warned about hypocritical righteousness, and he has taught that the kind of prayer that God rewards is secret and simple, not hollow and hypocritical. We've already discussed some of that, and today we're going to look at the rest in this part where Jesus teaches about prayer. We will see how Jesus teaches us that we should pray. So in Matthew chapter 6, I want us this morning to focus on verses 7 through 15. And if you're able, I invite you to stand with me as I read these words of Jesus for us. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Thank you. Please be seated. Now the first two of these verses in this passage, verses 7 and 8, have to do with empty and repetitious prayers. Uh, Jesus says, don't keep babbling like the pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. You know, this could have to do with chanting oneself into a sort of self-hypnosis as a substitute for prayer. There are Eastern religions that are known for that. Uh, some charismatic groups, even in the Christian faith, do some of that as well. Uh, endless prayers that drone on and on, the many words Jesus speaks of here. These, this wasn't just a characteristic of pagan prayers either. Jesus uh, spoke of Jewish scribes who, for a show, make lengthy prayers in Mark chapter 12. None of that, Jesus says, is particularly influential in God's eyes, doesn't persuade him, particularly one way or the other. Now, Jesus doesn't forbid long prayers. He himself is said to have prayed all night in Luke chapter 6. Nor does it prohibit repetition, because the Bible tells us that Jesus repeated his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane three times before his arrest. But Jesus does discourage the idea that God is won over, persuaded by lengthy prayers, or 
empty prayers. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame said, When you pray, let your heart be without words rather than your words without heart. We need to be focused when we pray. We need to be in the moment, not just going through the motions, babbling on and on and on in many words. Because after all, as Jesus says in verse 8, God knows what we need even before we ask Him. March the 1st of 1950 was a Wednesday. And like every Wednesday before, choir practice was scheduled for that evening at the Westside Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska. The 15 members of the church choir were always present and singing by 725 in the evening. Many of them often showed up early to get ready to visit, to have some fellowship. But that night, one by one, and even two by two, they all had excuses for being late, which was very unusual and unpredictable in that context. Marilyn Paul, the church pianist, overslept during her after-dinner nap. So she and her mother Martha were late. A high school sophomore who was a member of the church choir was having trouble with her geometry homework. It delayed her, so she was late. Royina Estes and her sister couldn't manage to get their car started, so they couldn't get there, they were late. Pastor Walter Klimple and his wife and daughter were also late because at the last minute her daughter had to change her dress and the one she was wearing needed to be ironed. That's when they ironed dresses back in those days. A man named Herbert Kiff, he was finishing up an important letter. He wanted to drop it off at the post office on the way, so he was late. Harvey All just lost track of time, got distracted, and he was late. Another was waiting for the end of a radio program, and the young lady who was riding with her was late with her, obviously. And one by one, all of them were late, all 15. And they all had excuses. At 7.25, when the choir rehearsal was always underway, not one soul was in the choir loft, not even in the building. And that had never happened before. It was the only night anyone could remember that the choir hadn't gathered on time. And at 7.27 p.m., a gas leak was ignited by the church furnace, and the whole church blew up. The building was destroyed, but not one of them was hurt. Now, we don't know in God's mysteriousness why He does that in some instances and in others does not, but what we do know is what Jesus tells us here. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And yet, we're told to ask. We're instructed to pray. And Jesus goes so far as to tell us how to pray. This little section is known as the Lord's Prayer, but it would be better called the Model Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer because it's the way Jesus taught us to pray. I like Dallas Willard's definition of prayer. He says, Prayer is intelligent conversation with God about matters of mutual concern. 
Very good definition. Or another similar one, talking with God about what we are doing together. That's prayer. And we're told by Jesus not to do that in a hypocritical kind of way. We've already looked at the section about hypocritical prayer, praying on the street corners to be seen by men. Jesus says, go into a solitary place by yourself, pray there in secret, and God who sees in secret will reward you. Now, one of the reasons we're told to, to pray in a solitary way is so that we can hear from God as well as speak to God. Former President Richard Nixon was once uh, reflecting on the prayer habits of his Quaker grandmother, and Chuck Colson heard that, included it in his book, Born Again. He records that Nixon said, when I was eight or nine years old, I asked my grandmother, a very saintly woman, a little Quaker lady who had nine children, I asked her why it was that Quakers believed in silent prayer. She said, what thee must understand, Richard, is that the purpose of prayer is to listen to God, not to talk to God. The purpose of prayer is not to tell God what thee wants, but to find out from God what he wants from thee. Well, there's certainly truth in that. We want to hear from God, and when we're alone and quiet, it's much easier for us to hear his Spirit speaking into our hearts. But Jesus does say that we do also talk to God. And here's the model for it as Jesus gives it to us. It begins with God first, with His glory, with His name, with His kingdom and His will. It's only when God has given His proper place in our lives that everything else finds its proper place in our lives. If your life seems like a mess, if you just can't make heads or tails of it, if you're frustrated, could it be because you haven't given God His place in your life first so that all of those other things can find their place? Well, the prayer begins, Our Father, we know that, but don't be too quick to miss that first word. The first word is our, isn't it? What that tells us is we're not alone. We have siblings, brothers, and sisters in Christ together under God. And it also teaches us that the Christian life is to be uh, engaged in, in, a, in, in the body of Christ, in the church that Christ created, His gift to us. God is our Father. Now that word Father may bring to mind good things in your life. It may stir up some negative thoughts and emotions. If you had a, a neglectful father, an absent father, a, an abusive father. But we all know what the, the, the model Father is supposed to be. And Jesus says that we can address God that way, the way He does. And when we think of Father in the right way, we think of words like provider, protector, advisor, teacher, friend. But best of all is the intimate relationship that it suggests. 
between a father and a child. We get to enjoy that kind of intimacy with God. At the same time, He is our Father in heaven. Now that reminds us that God is still God, that He is above us, that He transcends our existence, that He stands over us as God, worthy of our reverence and our awe. Our Father in heaven. And after that address of God comes three petitions punctuated by a refrain. For example, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, uh, all of these things are true of heaven, and we're asking God to make them true on earth as well, to bring these things into being. And the first is the name of God, hallowed revered, respected. We're told to pray that God's name would be revered by His creation. Isn't it odd that creatures who owe their very existence to God should choose to profane the name of God rather than bless it? It's shameful when you think about it. Like a child who curses the mother who gave him birth is the person who fails to revere and respect the name of the God who gave him life. Hallowed be thy name, God, on earth as it is in heaven. And then there is the kingdom and the will of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The third actually explains the second. Because the kingdom of God can be said to have come on earth when the will of God is perfectly done on earth. The two petitions are practically synonymous. In fact, Rick Warren calls them redundant. It's apparent, of course, that the kingdom of God has not fully come on earth yet. But has it come in your life yet? Have you exchanged your will for God's will? and His purpose for your existence, for your life, for your service. Because you see, when you begin to get on, in on the will of God, that's when you begin to get in on the kingdom of God in your life. In large part, that's what this Sermon on the Mount is all about, living as citizens of the kingdom of God. Well, the prayer begins with God, focus on God, attention on God, but then it moves to attention toward ourselves. It talks about our present, our past, and our future, if you catch it. Our present, of course, is daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, some interpreters have been rather creative about interpreting that, but I think the most obvious meaning is the right meaning. God is going to meet our basic needs and we should recognize that it is God who provides for us and we should depend on God every day in faith to do that. We can depend on God every day in faith to do that. Like the Israelites in the wilderness where there was no food, God provided them manna from heaven on a daily basis. They had to gather it each day. It would only keep overnight 
the night before the Sabbath so they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. God provides our daily bread. I got an, a prayer email just this week from a missionary in Ukraine uh, about the troubles that they're having there. She and her husband in their church in western Ukraine are gathering food supplies to hand out to these refugees who don't have anything to eat. She cited this phrase in the model prayer in her prayer email. Give us this day our daily bread. Never having fully understood what that meant until this crisis came. Well, that's our present. What about our past? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, this is not monetary, of course. The, the word debt and the word obligation or sin are closely related. This is a moral debt incurred as a result of sin. So debts in this case are equivalent to sins. In fact, in the Luke, in the parallels, the Lord's Prayer in Luke, in modern translations, it renders it, forgive us our sins. We often recite, and you will a bit later in the service, the, the King James Version of the prayer, which says, forgive us our trespasses, which are sins, transgressions, of the law of God and the will of God. But there is a condition, isn't there? Forgive us as we forgive others. I talked about that quite extensively last week, so if you weren't here, couldn't see that, you can go online and you can watch that message there. I do want to make one quick point here, though, and, and that is this. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says... Note that it is our debtors that are to be forgiven, not debts. In other words, it's personal. It's the person that we extend forgiveness to. We can't just say, uh, well, I'll forgive you for doing that, but I'm going to hold a grudge against you forevermore. We have to forgive the person if we expect forgiveness from our Heavenly Father. That's our past, the sins that have preceded us, but the future is addressed as well. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The humorist Robert Orban said, Most people want to be delivered from temptation, but would like to keep in touch. <laughs> there is some truth in that. I'm reminded of the, the young couple, newlyweds, if you will. They were struggling financially. They were having a hard time making ends meet, and so they agreed that whenever either of them was tempted to make an impulsive purchase, they would employ a strategy that Jesus used and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. Well, one day the wife came home with an expensive new dress. The husband said, Honey, didn't you remember to say, Get thee behind me, Satan? She said, I did. I remembered. I said it. Then what happened, he asked. She said, Satan said, that dress looks good from back here too. <laughs> Temptations are tricky things. We ask God to lead us not into temptation. The word for temptation can also refer to testing, by the way. And because of that, uh, the New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce thinks that the phrase, lead us not into temptation, carries the idea 
grant that we may not fail in the time of testing. I think there's some legitimacy to seeing it that way. God, help us not fail in the time of testing. We've, we've just come through a severe time of testing in our world and in our nation and in our churches. And too many have failed and fallen away. I think there's a legitimate flavor, a legitimate shade of interpretation to that that would fit there. But another scholar reads it more like this. Lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Whatever idea may be correct, the prayer certainly compels us to seek God's leadership and protection in life. And it goes without saying that we have a certain responsibility not to lead ourselves into temptation, doesn't it? If we want God to help us, we need to take some ownership of that as well. If you struggle with uh, alcohol, for example, don't drive home by the liquor store. If you struggle with lust, guard your eyes from tempting sights. If you struggle with uh, meeting your budget, overspending, then leave your debit and credit cards at home when you go out each day. Not all temptations can be avoided, but we can take action to resist them. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. But we can resist that temptation, and we ask for God's help to do it. Remember what Martin Luther said. Temptation is like the birds. We can't keep them from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from building nests in our hair. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation. And then there is the benediction that is not included in uh, most modern texts. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Uh, the older and better Greek manuscripts don't include that. It's not found in Luke's parallel, but at least one reputable New Testament scholar argues for its originality, and perhaps it was. Perhaps Jesus did use that from time to time. It's certainly wise and good and accurate and true. And it takes our attention away from ourselves again and puts it back on God where it belongs. Well, I need to finish. And I'll do so with a little story. It may just be that, a story. I don't know if it happened or not, but as the story goes, there is a little boy from New Haven, Connecticut, who was learning to recite the Lord's Prayer. And his mother thought that uh, the pastor ought to hear his unique take on that prayer. So she took him to visit the minister, and, and the minister asked the boy to recite it for him. And this is what the boy supposedly said. Our Father, who art in New Haven, how do you know my name? Well, the pastor was amused, naturally, but... He complimented the boy on his work, and he turned to the mother. He said, you know, he doesn't recognize it, but your son has hit on very, two very important truths. One is that God is near us, where we are, where we live, and that God knows our names. Little boy misquoted the prayer, but he communicated biblical truth. God does know where we are, 
He cares about us. He knows our names. And He's waiting to hear our prayers. So let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you hear our prayers. You teach us how to pray. You instruct us to bring our needs to you and have faith and trust that you will meet them. God, I pray that we would do so. I pray that your will would be done on earth, that your kingdom might come on earth that your name might be glorified, hallowed, respected. I pray, God, for your protection against the evil one, the temptations that come our way. And I pray that you would help us to be forgiving as you have been so graciously forgiving toward us. Teach us these lessons this day, Lord, and help us to employ them in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A bit later in the service,